We ask that the Lord would bless our time in his word this morning. Father, open our ears, open our eyes, build our faith, feed our souls on your good word. Encourage us. As your scripture says, Lord, test us, examine us, see if there's any wicked way in us. We would be like Jesus. We long to be like our Lord, like our Savior. And we thank you, knowing that you keep your promises. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. We're just going to look at a, at a small phrase. This morning's passage is actually the second half of verse 3. We will pick up the pace a little bit as time goes, but the, the scripture itself determines how long we spend. I watched a, an interview with a bass player. Some of you might, might recognize the name. His name is Leland Sklar. He, he played back in the 70s and the 80s, and he looks like Methuselah now. He's, he's probably in his 80s himself. He's got a long white beard. And, and uh, he was asked a question by some bass students at a school, how do you know what to play? And he said, the song tells you. The song tells you what to play. Well, the scripture tells us how long to speak by the enormity of what we see. And this, this little sentence at the end of verse 3 is enough to devote our time to, especially on this Communion Sunday. When he, when Jesus had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's it. That, that's enough to occupy our time. Let me remind you that the book of Hebrews, the little letter, was written to Jews who had put their faith in Jesus and were being tempted now to turn away from Jesus and to go back to the temple, to go back to the Levitical sacrifices and the rituals and the practices. The the message of this little letter can be put negatively and it can be put positively. Negatively, the message is don't fall away. Positively, the message is hold fast to Jesus. That's such a theme in this letter that there are more than 40 warnings and exhortations given. Do not harden your heart. Do not throw away your confidence in Jesus. Hold fast to your faith in Christ. Set aside every hindrance and fix your eyes upon Jesus. The The superiority of Jesus Christ is at the heart of every one of these warnings and exhortations. There's not a place where the writer of this letter says the church is better than Israel or Christians are better than Jews. What he says is Jesus is better. His sacrifice is better. His promises are better. His altar in heaven was better than anything ever on earth. His priesthood is better. And the Spirit of God preserved this letter for us through the last 2,000 years of church history because the risk of falling away remains. And it's through the warnings and the cautions that we are encouraged. Falling away is not committing an act of immorality. 
We, we use the, the statement, at least it used to be used, the, the idea of falling from grace. Someone who has fallen from grace is someone who has committed some act of immorality. If you heard it said that a pastor fell from grace, your, your immediate thought would be he committed adultery or he did some terribly immoral thing. But the Bible says that falling from grace is turning away from Jesus and trusting in something else for salvation. We understand, of course, that, that, uh, that Muslims and, and Buddhists and atheists have nothing to do with Christ, that they are in a state of falling away, fallen. But we also fall away from Christ if we add anything to his work. That's the whole message of the book of Galatians. If you add just one thing to the work of what Jesus did, in, the, in Galatians, it was circumcision. If you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and add circumcision, you now have a false gospel. The same thing is true if you take the gospel and you add baptism, if you add confirmation, if you add trying to be a good person, if you add trying hard, if you add good, good intentions, if you add anything to the gospel, you have added to something that needed nothing added, and it's actually become a false gospel that cannot save. The letter to the Hebrews, says to these Jews, having turned to Christ, having turned to the Lord Jesus, you must not turn back and you must not reach back into your religious history and bring anything in and say, we need this. We've already seen in the the, the previous verses, we're, we're actually in one sentence here still, that Jesus is the best and last revelation from God and that Jesus is Lord and God. This morning we see that Jesus is a superior Savior and high priest. This opening statement here is that he made purification for sins. That means that he washed them away. It means that he removed them from his people. He made atonement on his cross by his death. Under the law now, that the, the recipients of this letter were raised with, under the law, atonement required repeated sacrifices, frequent sacrifices. There, there's only a couple of exceptions in the law for things like the birth of a first child where a sacrifice is offered only one time ever. All the other sacrifices, the the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, the guilt offerings, the the peace offerings, the wave offerings, the cereal offerings, the drink offerings, they were to be offered repeatedly. It was a lifetime of exhausting work. It's perfectly biblically accurate to say Old Testament worship was all about becoming right with God. When you went to the temple, it was to be made right with God. Nobody went to the temple having been justified. They went in order to be justified. And when they left, they knew that whatever sacrifices they had offered were good up to that point. But that day, they would offend God again. And it would be necessary to go back. The gospel called upon Jews and Gentiles alike to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Now, for Jews, those reading this letter, it meant turning away from the law. It meant turning away from the Levitical sacrifices, the priesthood, and the temple, and understanding that Jesus had fulfilled all of that. 
that those things had become perfect in him. It meant turning away from the religion of their parents and their grandparents and their family. It meant turning away from the things they had always been told would make them right with God. It meant turning away from the very foundation of their cultural identity. Who are you as a person? You're going to take all of that now off and drop it where you stand and move on in Christ. This is a huge issue. It's terribly difficult. And Jesus acknowledges it. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He tells us the truth. Full disclosure, it is incredibly costly, incredibly Difficult to turn away from your history and your culture and your religious traditions and become a Christian. And few are willing to do it. Nevertheless, Jesus doesn't apologize for it. In fact, he doubles down as he goes on here in Matthew. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is a life and death issue, Jesus says. If ultimately you look at the gospel and you look at your history and your past and your family and you say, I choose my history, then you'll spend that history in hell. That's what he says. If you want to say that's not what he meant, your argument's with him. It's a hard thing that he requires of his people. He acknowledged that, and the writer of Hebrews knows it. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't actually know. It could have been any number of people. I think Paul wrote Hebrews. Whoever it is, there is a burning ache in the heart of this this writer that his people who have turned to Christ, stay there, and that those who have not turned to Christ do so. He aches for them. (laughs) Jesus commands us to walk away from man-centered religion, to give up everything we've ever done to be right with God, to stop doing what we've been taught to do to make us right with God, to stop doing the things that we think will make us good enough And to turn to him. And it's hard. It's hard. I think the silence in the room recognizes the fact that this is a hard thing to do. We could understand that nobody easily does it. Nobody casually does it. And to the Jews reading this letter, hearing this letter for the first time, I'm sure that they would have had many questions, but one of the questions that they would have had is, okay, this is huge. You're telling me to walk away from the the thing that I was raised to believe made me right with God and to turn to something else. What if you're wrong? What if I turn away from eternal life and turn toward damnation? Can you give me any evidence that what Jesus claims is true? Can you give me any evidence that the promises that that are made in the gospel are genuine and true? 
And the writer says, yes, I can. Yes, I can. Jesus sat down. When he had made purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty at high. Jesus sat down. There's the proof. Now, if any of you were first century Jews, raised in the Levitical system, your, your mind would be exploding at the idea that a priest sat down because priests didn't sit down. Priests didn't sit down. For us Gentiles, we look at it and say, okay, he sat down, and, well, that, that could be enough for a Jew. Priests never sat down. Old Testament worship took place in the tabernacle originally and then the temple in Jerusalem. The basic layout, the basic function of those places was the same. Out in the courtyard, there was a bronze altar upon which the the sacrifices were burnt. Uh, There were implements that were prepared for using with the altar, pails and forks and fire pans and gratings. Uh, Out in the courtyard, there was also a thing called the bronze laver. King James, I think, calls it the molten sea. And what it was was a, a large bowl of water. I think that it probably would have been eight or ten feet across. It held thousand, a couple thousand gallons of water. And it was there so the priests could wash their hands and their feet before they approached the altar every single time. As you moved into the building, into the sanctuary, or into the front part of the tent, you were in what was called the holy place. And there were a few objects there. There was a table that, contra- that contained showbread. Uh, the showbread was baked every Sabbath and placed there every Sabbath and replaced. And the priests took the old bread and they ate it. The golden lampstand, the altar of incense, and then tools for the altar of incense. Some pans and, and some tongs and things like that. And, and, and that's it. And then at the back of the holy place, the back of that sanctuary, was the thick veil. And on the other side of the veil was the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies there is just one thing, and that's the Ark of the Covenant. Those are the items God commanded to be built and placed in the tabernacle and the temple. Those are the items that were made for it and placed there. There are no instructions in the law, no instructions in the scripture for seating of any kind. No chairs, no benches, no thrones. The priests were not to sit. Their work was never done. Their work continued. It began before daylight, it continued through the day, and it wasn't done until after dark. There were hundreds of men, hundreds of priests, and many more Levites in the the temple all the time. It was a bustling, active, noisy place. On major feast days, there could be as many 500 priests, plus all of the Levites attending and helping. And their work was never done, and so they never sat down. If you're bringing a a, a sin offering, which is for unintentional sins, or a guilt offering, which is for intentional sins, you're going to be back tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. At least every year you had to make that offering. Your work was never done. The priest's work was never done. The whole temple existed as a way of mediating human sin before God. It's all the temple really existed for. It's the majority of what took place there. But Jesus sat down. 
Jesus sat down. Why? His work was done. His purification was not a momentary purification. It was not simply a covering of sin. It was the removal of sin. So Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. John 19.30 The Bible never speaks of Jesus' sacrifice as an ongoing event. Instead, it says it's a historical event that took place, it was completed, and it will never be repeated. Jesus will never again die. He will never again offer himself for sinners. He will never make any other sacrifice for sin. He offered one sacrifice. We'll see two or three times in the book of Hebrews that Jesus died once for all. And the sense there is not once for all people, but once for all time. At a point in history, if we had the right kind of calendar and the right kind of record keeping, we could actually say it was on this day, in this year, at this moment of time. It was a a moment of history. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He yielded up his spirit. And he died bearing the wrath of God against his people. And he was buried. And he spent a certain number of hours and minutes in that tomb. And then he was raised from the dead. These are historical realities. And when he was done, he sat down. Let me just highlight something here. Jesus didn't just finish his work. He finished the work. See, Moses finished his work. Moses did what God had called him to do. David finished his work. Isaiah finished his work. But when Moses died, the work was not done. When David died, the work was not done. Jesus not only finished his work, he finished the work. The whole plan of God was brought to a close in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so Jesus sat down. If Jesus' death and resurrection are not sufficient to save me, nothing ever will. Nothing ever will. If his death and resurrection are not sufficient to save sinners, if we must add anything to it, if we must do anything, then all humanity is confined to hell for all eternity. There is no hope. Because there is no better Savior, there is no better sacrifice, there is no better altar, there is no better blood. If His is not sufficient, nothing is sufficient. But because Jesus did His work perfectly and completely, every single one of His people will be saved, not a single will be lost. And the proof that Jesus finished His work is that He sat down. He sat down. The gospel called Jews and calls Jews and Gentiles alike to abandon everything for the sake of Christ. There is one Savior and one Lord. This is the message that we proclaim. That Savior, that Lord Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to redeem his people. And now he calls upon us not to save ourselves, but to turn away from the old things that were killing us. Not only the sins that were killing us, but the false hopes that were killing us. And to trust in Him. To trust in Him only. To repent of our sins and believe the gospel. And He proved 
the perfection of what he did by sitting down. So as, as we think about bringing this home, there are people in our time who believe that God is pleased when they try to obey his law, when they follow rites and rituals, and that he'll reward their efforts. This is the common belief. That God himself says in his word that no one is saved by keeping the law. In Romans chapter 3, we are told, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God didn't give the law so that we could be saved by it. God gave us the law so we would know that we needed to be saved. There are many in our time who believe that God requires a sacrifice of one sort or another and that he won't save them unless they do that sacrifice like trying to be good or having good intentions or carrying out certain actions or having certain actions done to them. But God condemns every human work as filthy and putrid. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, I'm sorry, Galatians 3.22 says, The scripture has imprisoned everyone under sin. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Isaiah 64, 6 says all of our good works are just filthiness. They're just filthiness. Many in our time believe that they need a human mediator who will give them assurances. A, a priest, someone who stands in the place of God and who who applies the work of salvation to their lives. But see, we have a high priest who is seated in heaven at the right hand of the majesty and high and at the same time is standing in intercession for us and never stops praying for us. There could never be a better pastor than Jesus Christ. And Jesus is our pastor. How do we know that? Because he's the good shepherd. The word translated shepherd is the word that's translated pastor. Jesus is my pastor. He's your pastor. You don't need another pastor to save you. What I do as a, as a teacher is to take what he has given us in his word through his apostles and declare it to you. These are not my words. When I pray for you, it's as a brother in Christ. When you pray for me, it's as a brother or a sister in Christ. 1 Timothy 2 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We don't need another. Here's the thing. There's no room for another. And if you try and get into heaven by bringing another mediator with you, you both will be turned away. There are no other mediators You have to abandon yourself to the Lord Jesus, which for many people is a terrifying idea. To give up control, to, to say that uh, I'm going to cease trying to be the good person, I'm going to cease trusting in this thing or, or that thing. And there are people who say, well, I, I know that, but I'm doing this just in case. Just, just in case, just in case God lied just in case God isn't trustworthy, just in case God didn't mean it. If, if you're doing something just in case and God actually lied, why do you think he would respect your good work? If, if you're trusting in, in, in baptism or circumcision or an act 
just in case, why do you think God would respect that? If he, if he can't be trusted to keep the promises that he's made, why would you think he'd keep the promises that you've made for him or that somebody else has made for him? He never said, I save everybody who's baptized no matter what they do. I save the people who are good no matter, or who try to be good. As long as their good works outweigh their bad works all, yeah, I'm good with that. He never said that. Those are human inventions. So when, when we come to the Lord's table in a few minutes, we're going to be proclaiming in that act of receiving the bread and the cup that we have abandoned every human hope. And that, that we are coming to Jesus alone and trusting him for our salvation. To be, to be honest, God isn't pleased because we, we eat a little wafer and we, we sip a little wine. He is pleased when we trust in what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf on the cross. Now, as you think about this, as you think about Jesus making purification for sins and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty of high as Lord and as Savior, All of us have to ask, is there anything of the old life that we're trying to smuggle in? Is, are there any old hopes that we're kind of banking on? Do we have any just-in-case things? As I've been cleaning out my basement wood shop, I, I, I keep finding things. I've, I've got a dozen old chisels that are rusted and bent up and chipped and useless why keep them? Well, you never know. Well, I do know. I'm never going to use them. Hard thing is, is when you throw a chisel away in a plastic bag, it rips through the plastic bag, and that's another story. But the just-in-case stuff can be dropped. It doesn't do you any good, and it could do you terrible harm. Are you hoping in anything apart from Jesus himself to save you and perfect you and make you right? with God? Are you hanging on to anything? Are you, do you have any just-in-cases in, in your pocket or in, your, in your, your purse or in your luggage that you're thinking, well, if I get there and Jesus can't make it, I've, I've got the just-in-case. If, if you do, would you do this? Would you confess the sin of doubting God's integrity and promise? Would you confess the sin of adding to his finished work? Would you confess the sin of doubting that Jesus is sufficient? Trust him. Trust him. And then come and celebrate what Jesus did for you. We practice open communion. If you've trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, then we invite you to join us at the table of the Lord.